<coughs> Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wander in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not through and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the fifth day of our summer seven-day session, 12th of January 2022. And we left off yesterday reading the uh, reminiscences of Wes Borden and how he um, found himself to be liberated, really, from his own inner critic by Tangan Roshi's unconditional acceptance. Um, his love, we could say. And um, it's not a, not a word that is used much in Zen, uh, but I think it's, it's warranted here. And just to, to um, look a little bit at this term and how, um, how it comes to us as Western Buddhists from Western culture. And I'm reading here from a book called um, Red Thread Zen, humanly, humanly Entangled in Emptiness. And um, there's a, one of the koans that we work on in the um, early stages of, of koan practice is, um, how is that perfectly, how is it that perfectly accomplished saints and bodhisattvas are still attached to the red thread? 
and and uh, this book is explores this 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 red thread this um, line of of uh, uh, blood the the bloodline of the of the Zen school really and in this chap this chapter that we're going to read from is um, entitled you and with this with the with the kind of subtitle of the koan of human being love remains blessedly quiet as a word in zen and i am grateful for that fact left so rarely sounded it is freed to speak itself eloquently in the open unspoken offer of the self let me read that again. Left so rarely sounded, it is freed to speak itself eloquently in the open, unspoken offer of the self that marks maturity in Zen. Realization experiences the full charge and gift of being here, and this is of inestimable value. But realized behavior is what finally counts. I have no trouble calling all of this love, but better than using the word is seeing the action. You could say in the in the account of of Tangan Roshi that um, the action is being described, the act of love, this um, non-judgmental appreciation, a holding. She continues, when the word love is overused, its currency is debased and slips into self-adornment. Underbased, love is a word that inspires and also chastens action and seems to know what's needed faster than thought. We endure a slow destitution when the word is hollowed out by overuse. What can take hold or thrive among hyperinflated expressions of love and cloying, stumbling detours of sentimentality. I think of the disturbing proliferation of teddy bears and other cuddly toys in recent times to mark the place where raw adult loss and empathy attempts and somehow fails to be expressed, possibly fails even to be coherently felt. It's, it, this, is, this is the problem with the word love. It's so, it's so um, overused in many areas. You can say, um, I love pizza. And the, the love there really just is, is meaning like. But it also has huge resonance for us in Western culture. She goes on to explore this a little. Zen came west in the 20th century and met with a worldview that, among other ideas foreign to its place of origin, once had strongly at its center a personal God, usually addressed by the personal pronoun him, and a fundamental understanding that this God is loving, indeed is love itself. 
if this worldview has suffered the attrition of a steadily desacralizing secular worldview across several centuries, the ideas of unconditioned love the idea of unconditioned love persists as an all but sacred residual reference point for what is right, true, transforming, reconciling, and redeeming. In other words, love is still held forth in the West as the closest thing to salvation. The cultural orientation of Asian Zen was carefully distanced from this word love that nevertheless flows as blood stream through the red thread. The topic of the book, this koan. Confucian ideals of filial duty, mutual dependency, and subordination of the self to social cohesion blended readily with the Buddhist ideal of equanimity understood as achieved non-attachment, the cooling of the passions to a neutral universal friendliness no longer disturbed by an ungoverned self. Add to this a monastic setting that enacted an ascetic removal from the world and a formal diplomatic distance from love becomes complete. But the vigor of Western, the Western ideal of love taken to the level of ultimate and redemptive mystery in the term the passion, meaning the loving and sacrificial, sacrificial suffering of Christ, but also valorizing romantic love as personal salvation, prevents a very different, presents a very different energy. She goes on to explore how, to, how these two come together. But the point for us in our discussion is that... Um, Given the importance of of love within um, Western spirituality, there there is a place to um, kind of recognize it um, when we see it because of this 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 strong um, resonance and history that the word love, the term love, has for us. There's a place to to um, to use it carefully. Look, turn back to. Um, Tangan Roshi's experience of what we can label love on top of Mount Kimpoku. So he climbed, he climbed this Mount Kimpoku. Um, uh, he, t he relates, shedding tears, I repeatedly reflected and repentant. I'm no good, I'm no good, as I made the 30-minute ascent up the mountain trail. And then um, he describes this experience he has uh, on the far side of the mountain, seeing the valley that stretched out below him all the way to the Pacific Ocean and the, um, the hills of the Izu Peninsula. He says, transfixed by the mountain landscape, the wind blew into me from the valley floor and I felt as if I were growing bigger and bigger. 
In retrospect, we could say that I was experiencing the reality of being one with and cared for by all things of this world, experiencing the greatness of the life I have been given. But at the time, I just felt myself becoming bigger and the sensation of being protected by everyone. Protected by everyone. Held. Uh, not, not separate. Not alienated. But this, this enormous relief of, um, and elation that came to him from, from this um, expansive experience. As we explored before, it starts off with this, this uh, what appears to be um, uh, very uh, negative statement of a repeated, "I'm no good, I'm no good." But this is this is not paralyzing self-criticism, which um, people in the West so often struggle with, and which we'll look more into. Um, but in a sense, some uh, kind of fruitful regret in that it, it leads to uh, repentance in the, sense of, in the sense of a resolve, um, a strong resolve to change, to do things differently. If Tangan Roshi had been Christian, uh, he might have said, when having had this experience on the top of the mountain, that he had been filled with God's love. We can, we can recognize his experience as, as something primal. And this, this feeling of being held is, is being held in something all pervading, great. And that, that later on he, he connected um, this, this feeling to um, the protecting hands and eyes of uh, Kanon Sama, Bodhisattva of Compassion. In the West, we, uh, we uh, many of us, I think, are not, not open to this experience fully. We, we've abandoned Christianity and um, it no longer resonates for us in terms of um, being open to what could be called God's love. Uh, but neither have we yet opened to the, the love and protection of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas as Tangan Roshi experienced it. And I wonder if this isn't, if this isn't uh, one of the reasons why so many of us struggle uh, mightily with our inner critic, as it's been labelled, like to turn to, to a text now which has um, a chapter called Taming the Inner Critic. This is um, the five invitations discovering what death can teach us about living fully. And it's by Frank Ostaseki, who was one of the co-founders of um, the Zen Hospice Project in um, uh, Bay, the Bay Area, 
as well as a, um, a Buddhist teacher. And uh, this book offers um, f these five different, what he calls invitations or stances to take in relation to birth and death. And um, this chapter on the inner, um, taming the inner critic is part of the chapter, the, the invitation, um, bringing your whole self to the experience. He writes, and this is just sort of really laying out the, 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 the geography of this, of this uh, inner critic, which is so pervasive in Western culture. No matter how, how you try, you can't please your inner critic. There's no fooling it. The critic knows your every move, every trick up your sleeve, every bit of your past. It has been right there with you throughout your life. You shower with it, take it to work. It sits next to you at every meal and even sticks around for dessert. It's there during and after sex, and yes, it's definitely there when you're dying. It compares, praises, devalues, diminishes, invalidates, blames, approves, condemns, and attacks your appearance, job performance, the way you conduct relationships, your friends, your health, your diet, your hopes and dreams, your thoughts, and your spiritual development. Pick something, anything, as it's all interchangeable. Let's face it, in the inner critic's eyes, nothing you do is good enough. We could say, if we were to think into, in archetypal terms, that this, this um, uh, critic is um, the, what Odysseusky calls the enforcer. So coming down through a lineage, not of the loving God, um, but the God that is to be feared, the authoritarian God. The critic is the enforcer, demanding compliance to an acquired set of standards and moral codes. It's the voice, voice that says, my way or the highway, and it wields brutally its chosen weapons of fear, shame, and guilt in order to get you to do what it wants. Often in our most vulnerable moments, when we would benefit from tenderness, we club ourselves with self-judgment. Even near the end of life, it is common for people to look back with regret, to become obsessed, obsessed with if-only conversations, or to tell themselves that they aren't doing a good job of dying. Friends and relatives add to the pile of guilt by projecting their own inner critic's voice onto the person who is dying, suggesting that he should fight harder or she should let go more gracefully. The inner critic is ambivalent about change, shifts in identity, creativity, and inner work, and it is downright terrified of anything bubbling up from the unconscious. The judge prefers status quo, the familiar, the predictable. It insists on homeostasis. Don't rock the boat, it advises, it's not safe. That is why focusing on self-improvement or making any attempt to fix what the critic views as the problem never works. 
well, we could we could maybe question that because if we if we um, look at uh, Tangan Roshi's experience, the, this negative self-judgment was followed up by um, transformation. But we could perhaps say the negative the negative um, in a critic in this situation of. Um, uh, not being balanced out by this this other side of of uh, being held um, it's got this this punitive quality to it, and so you can never win you could say and and he then goes on to describe the the ways in which we try to improve ourselves in seeking the approval of others, conforming to an external standard and trying to please. We are looking for love in all the wrong places. Searching for what we, we don't feel and in places which are unreliable in terms of um, bringing us any kind of satisfaction. He continues, praise and blame are symptoms of an infectious disease and as with any, any illness, we need to do more than treat the symptoms. We have to address the underlying causes. We need to go to the heart of the matter. We need to see how the habit of constant self-judgment diminishes our life force, steals our inner peace, and crushes our souls. So he's proposing here a kind of um, investigation of this, this, the, how this inner critic arises. And the, the chapter that we're reading from has a, um, a quote at the beginning of it. And this quote uh, says a lot about where this voice comes from. Uh, this is somebody called Peggy O'Mara. And she said, the way we talk to our children becomes their inner voice. Odysseusky says, the pursuit of perfection is learned early on and for most of us becomes a lifelong addiction. It is an ego-based quest that easily can eclipse the soul's journey to wholeness. This is why, in order to bring the whole self to the experience, we must address the often, often unconscious, corrosive voice of the inner critic. It is the primary obstacle to self-acceptance, trust, and the expansion of our dynamic potential. It stops all growth, arrests inner development, steals our power, and makes negative self-talk the norm. Furthermore, the judge impedes our ability to connect and empathize with other people. Chances are, if you're extremely critical of yourself, you'll be a harsh critic of others. You may think it even if you don't say it. And I think, Often um, we communicate, unconsciously communicate that judgment even if we don't say anything. We may not even be aware that we're doing this. Um, Sharon Salzberg um, talks about this uh, process as self-hatred. And we'll, we'll, if there's time, we'll, we'll look at some of her comments on this issue. But I think it's helpful to use the label inner critic because um, it, gives, it gives some space around this thing where self-hatred 
sounds very um, intimately woven into who and what we are. He continues, when we bring our whole self forward, we include our brokenness. We make room for blemishes as well as purity, strength as well as vulnerability, success as well as screw-ups. Judgment focuses on what's wrong, and it feeds an either-or mentality. Embracing wholeness is a loving act of reclamation, a both-and way of meeting life. To free our, ourselves from the inner critic, we have to understand something of its origins, how we are impacted by it, and how we can successfully disengage from its negative influence. In short, our treatment plan includes the application of wisdom, strength, and love. Now just um, skipping around a little bit in this chapter, he, he talks to one friend um, who um, says that she, she needs her inner critic. She says, but what, what would I have left without the voice of my inner critic? Who would I be? A lazy, miserable person who had never got after her dreams? Without it, I wouldn't have got anything done. So she sees it as, as a valuable, a valuable goad to her, um, her success. She says, it motivates me to, towards positive, productive change. But Otaseski would disagree. He says, I find the inner critic berates me more than it motivates me. It is neither a conscience nor a reliable moral guide. It isn't the voice of wisdom. Yes, there may be some kernel of truth wrapped in the critic's commentary. It may have a useful tidbit of information to offer, but I certainly don't need its delivery system. It has a particular tone of voice that is often mean, dismissive, and manipulative. I've been with many wise spiritual teachers over the years, and none of them has ever transmitted their wisdom to me in such a nasty tone. He concludes, people often imagine that the negative grating voice in their heads is helping them, but it's not. The critic doesn't believe in our basic human goodness. It only believes in rules and moral codes. Psychologically, the critic is the protector of ego. It denies everything else. It doesn't know your soul. It doesn't trust your heart to know how you feel, to be empathic and compassionate in relationships. It doesn't have faith that your intuitive gut sense can guide you in situations you're encountering for the first time. The inner critic only wants you to heed, heed its advice. It doesn't trust in your ability to reason and evaluate as a way to navigate through life's dilemmas. So, I, seeing this, this critic as having gained kind of ascension um, in a situation where we no longer feel held, um, you could say it's a kind of 
a failure of love. Um, we, have, we are bombarded by messages from consumerism that emphasize personal power and success and creation of wealth. And none of these are nurturing or loving messages. Um, we're we're um, repeatedly told that we're lacking. There is an alternative to the critic. It's found in the movement from judgment to discernment. Judgment is the harsh, harsh aggressive habit that shuts down the conversation, binds us to the past and old behaviors, and closes off our access to other capacities. Discernment makes space, helps us to have perspective, and allows more of our humanity to show up. Discernment helps wisdom to emerge and enables us to choose a more beneficial future. Our innate discriminating wisdom is a kind, more objective voice that is available to all of us. It can differentiate, discern, and intelligently guide us forward. He goes on to say it's, it's, it's kind of like it, it has a certain purpose, um, but then um, outgrows, uh, we, we outgrow it. But we could also, we could also be, uh, apart from this, this sort of um, cognitive way of, of um, looking at things, we could also say that probably the best, the best antidote to this, this uh, inner critic is um, Awakening to our true self that is no self. Directly experiencing that. Just bear with me, everybody. I'm looking for a passage which looks like I didn't mark. 
see if I can find it. Here we are. So he's just in um, looking into the, the, the way this this um, inner critic arises in us and has a, has a place that then we are grow. When all of us were children, our parents and grandparents, older siblings, teachers, spiritual advisors, and other responsible adults in our lives did their best to show us right from wrong. By and large, they were well-intentioned. Their goal was to foster our development and protect us from harm. Without doubt, we needed some guidance or we wouldn't have made it to adulthood alive and healthy, nor would we have been able to successfully enter into society that relies on certain codes of conduct. And so these grown-ups imbued us with their values and standards. They taught us the basic rules they believed we would need in order to cope in the world. This natural socialization process only becomes problematic when it spills over into a forced attempt to align a child's behavior with the adult's view of life. Most grown-ups are not ogres, yet inevitably they pass along their unconscious assumptions unskillful strategies, strategies, prejudices, and biases from their own unexamined lives. Maybe your parents were embarrassed by your fascination with your sexual impulses or exhausted by your unstoppable energy. Perhaps your teachers and spiritual leaders used warnings and reprimands to control your behavior, manage your emotions, and keep you from doing things that made them uncomfortable. Or maybe your mother or father wanted you to get to do things you didn't really want to, to do, like go to sleep when you weren't tired, dress in a certain way, have different friends, or eat what was offered, whether or not it looked good and tasted good to you. When we were small, the adults had all the power. We were completely dependent upon them for our budding self-perception and, more importantly, for our survival. To a young child, such approval or disapproval often feels like a matter of life and death. Out of self-preservation, we learn to get and maintain approval and avoid shame and punishment by bending to adults' wishes. Along the way, we internalize their voices of authority, adapted to their values or rebelled against them. This conditioning, the should and the should nots, the message that something was wrong with us, formed the basis of our inner critics. And you could say we kind of um, uh, comply with this. We 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 co-create it. Um, when something um, bad happens to us, we think we're bad. Um, this is something that that Eckhart Tolle explores in his book. He calls it the pain body. So we make we we make assumptions about ourselves when we don't fulfil. Um, expectations that we've internalized. As we come into adulthood, the, the harsh, coercive voice of the judge outgrows its usefulness, but it continues to live on in us as a powerful psychological structure that wants to protect us by managing our lives. 
It's a bit like our wisdom teeth. Once when we existed on a diet of raw meat, nuts and roots, these teeth were necessary for our survival. Yet as we evolved, we learned how to use tools, cutting and cooking food we eat. And as a result, we no longer needed our wisdom teeth. Similarly, as we mature, we have access to less reactive and more discerning wisdom that is objective, positive, and can function as a reliable and creative guide in our lives. We don't need the inner critic's constant appraisal and attacks, its humiliation, repression, and rejection, or the suffering it generates. So um, learning to recognize this inner critic to, to, um, know, to know its voice um, and uh, to be able to see it for what it is is a, is a huge um, skill that we can develop. And it's, it's, not, um, it's not a comfortable one because it means really um, experiencing those, those vulnerable feelings that it in, engenders in us, the shame, uh, the the sense of inadequacy, these kinds of things. But absolutely necessary in order for us to to free ourselves to some degree from this this inner voice. Um, it's uh, labelled in um, in classical Buddhist teaching, Mara. Mara is the deceiver. The, um, the embodiment of um, ego that um, bothers even the Buddha. You know, there's in the Buddha's awakening, great awakening account, um, Mara comes to him and speak to, speaks to him in the voice of his whole, own uh, inner, inner voice his habit voice, and, and questions whether the Buddha is worthy to um, come to awakening. And then the Buddha touches the earth with his hand and the earth um, responds, yes, yes, he's worthy. So even, even the Buddha struggles with Mara. Once he starts teaching, Mara also appears at various times to kind of undermine what's going on and um, sometimes um, the Buddha will, will uh, be involved in these stories sometimes as other, other disciples, but, but um, he and they will, will at a certain point say, is that you, Mara? Because once Mara is recognized as Mara, then his, his undermining negative judgments doubt-producing um, statements won't have the same power. They'll be seen as um, uh, ego trying to protect itself. mentioned an article by Sharon Salzberg. Um, it's called The Self-Hatred Within Us. 
and um, she, uh, in this, she men mentions a conversation that she had with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 1990 um, in India, in uh, uh, where the Dalai Lama lives there. Um, this was this was an organ organized this this meeting was organized by the Mind and Life Institute, and its purpose was to bring together prominent um, Buddhist teachers uh, from the West to meet with um, His Holiness, and um, Bodhen Roshi was at this meeting as well, and. Um, Related this this uh, exchange, and it's been it's been since often referred to because it, it is so illustrative. Um, so she she put her hand up at this this meeting and asked the Dalai Lama, Your Holiness, what do you think about self hatred? He looked at me, seeming somewhat confused, and asked in response. What's that? It powerfully sums up the fundamental difference between our Western ambition-focused value system and the Buddhist moral compass. While I came to meditation at 18 as a result of dealing with feelings of inadequacy and self-judgment for my entire young adult life, the Dalai Lama didn't even know what the meaning of self-hatred was. When I explained to him what I meant by the term, talking about the cycle of self-judgment, guilt, unproductive thought patterns, he asked me, how could you think of yourself that way? And he explained to me that we all have the Buddha nature. Obviously not, it's entirely, not entirely confined to uh, Western culture, or we wouldn't see Mara as such a an important figure in the, uh, in the suttas, in the stories of the early practitioners. But it does seem to be um, particularly powerful and entrenched uh, within Western culture. In other words, he simply didn't get the fact that many of us are often overcome with fundamental feelings of negativity and inadequacy. I revisit this story repeatedly because there was and still is something so freeing about the fact that the Dalai Lama was surprised about this negative way of relating to ourselves, an attitude that seems so common in today's day and age. I don't want to deify Asian culture or Tibetan people or Buddhist thought. There are problems in every society, group and philosophical school but I think it is powerful to reflect on what we think we will find within if we look underneath our habits and our desires and our fears. Is it a capacity for love and awareness, or is it pretty much nothing or nothing good? And as I say, we may have to face this nothing or nothing good um, to, to get in touch with our capacity for love and awareness. And, and we can be um, fearful of, of really uh, facing these feelings in ourselves. She says, I've found that many, if not most, of the people with whom I've spoken feel the greatest sense of struggle 
around the question of cultivating love for oneself. We are conditioned to associate self-love with selfishness and self-deprecation with virtue. It often seems easier to access feelings of judgment and anger about ourselves and then towards those around us. And she's coming, she's coming uh, out of the uh, tradition of Theravada Buddhism in which loving-kindness meditation, in which one of the objects of one's, one's uh, sending love out is oneself. It often, she says, it often seems easier to access feelings of judgment and anger about ourselves than towards those around us. And we could probably say, especially for women, it's, it's uh, women are expected to be selfless in a certain kind of way and self-deprecating. If we, if we go back to the example of, of Tangan Roshi, um, his, his uh, liberating experience came not through uh, cultivating love for himself, but, but through accessing and, and focusing on his love for others. And perhaps that's, that's one of the keys here. In my research, I've encountered extensive information about evolutionary biology and specifically about the phrase negativity bias. This concept refers to the fact that our nervous systems are programmed on an evolutionary level to look for possible negative outcomes in our surroundings. Our job as living creatures is to spot imminent danger and any sense of threat in our surroundings. Looking for negativity in our lives is generally a survival mechanism dating back to the times when we were actually required to protect ourselves from being killed by predators. And of course, if, if this is a factor, then of course it would apply to all cultures, all people, that we all have this negativity bias. One of the things perhaps that distinguishes Tibetan culture, though, is that it has many practices which actually are aimed at counteracting this negativity bias. Uh, practices around gratitude and around um, uh, compassion for others, putting, putting others first, altruism. Given that most of us probably have no need to measure ourselves against the potential threat of a tiger or bear, we simply become lost in this pattern of dwelling on negativity, which includes more and more fixation on our own failings and inadequacy. And so because of that greater and greater fixation, it is reinforcing this, this sense of a negative self.
When I went to India to learn meditation, I hoped that I could become an entirely different person through meditating. Unsurprisingly, I found that I was unable to establish a practice of meditating from this place of self-hatred. In order to get to a place where I was able to feel a positive change in my life from practice, I had to challenge my own self-judgment, as difficult as that was. Because it went against my habit, my survival mechanism of pointing out the negative in my life, it felt almost dangerous. By challenging myself in this way, I was able to let go of my constant state of guilt and find a sense of spaciousness and acceptance, even if negative feelings arose. Creating that spaciousness as a foundation allowed me to get to the place where negative feelings could come in and go out with greater ease and gentleness. Um, Tangan Roche yesterday talked about um, big mind, wide mind. The more we can cultivate this, this uh, spaciousness, then the less uh, power these negative feelings will have over us. We can let them just arise and, and depart according to the law of impermanence. Of course, sometimes we have feelings of self-judgment. It's important for us not to get caught up in judging the self-judgment, which leads to a vicious cycle of negativity. Years ago, a friend of mine visited the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts for the annual three-month retreat, and our teacher, Deepa Ma, was visiting during the course. One day during the retreat, my friend simply felt like he couldn't meditate and wanted to go check into a motel to watch football. So he did, <laughs> but it hardly cleared his mind. I, I, there's a, also a story within the, the Rochester lineage of somebody having of this powerful Marchio that, that he would needed to go to Boston and actually going to the airport, buying a ticket, getting on the plane to go to Boston and then halfway there realizing <laughs> that he had uh, fallen into, into a Marchio and then actually got a plane back and came back into the Sashin again. <laughs> So anyway, he did, this guy came back too from his, his trip to the motel to watch football and uh, felt terrible, mortified that he'd done this. And um, uh, went, went to Deepama, um, despite his, his embarrassment, and um, told her what, he, what he'd done. And Salzburg writes, um, she was surprisingly okay with it and accepted him unconditionally. Now you can begin again, she reassured him, repeating a phrase that I now use to describe the practice of meditation to my students, no matter if they're beginning their practice or have been meditating for years. Now you can begin again. Every time we sit with our breath, we can begin again an incalculable number of times. 
we can let go of our distractions, our ruminations, and establish clarity of vision that is also filled with love. Um, late um, meditation master Goenkaji, uh, in his uh, guided 10-day uh, courses, would say again and again, start again, start again. That's our job. That's our job in Sishin. Just to start again. Every moment is fresh. Every moment is new. And to do it out of this place of, of care, which is always for all. To, to truly care for ourselves is to care for others. And to, to truly care for others is to care for ourselves. Saltzad concludes, beginning again doesn't mean we are lazy or don't seek excellence in what we undertake. It means we've figured out something that isn't awfully available in our popular culture. Seeking to punish ourselves endlessly will leave us exhausted and demoralized. Caring about ourselves allows us to renew our efforts and to continue on. This is the love that the Dalai Lama had tried to explain to me during our talk about self-hatred many years ago. And we can, we can see the, the transformative power of love in uh, the life of, of Tangan Roshi and this, this extraordinary um, aura about him of, of uh, deep affection and care. Really, he... He embodied Kanonsama, the Bodhisattva who he came to see as being behind the extraordinary uh, near misses in his life. Near misses of, of uh, death. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. Without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. 
the great way of Buddha I found to attain all beings without number I found to liberate endless flying passions I found to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha